Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Eternal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Baptism of Fire, Chapter 2. So, uh, this chapter is really where the D&D feel that I talk about, uh, that, I, that I have talked about in a couple previous episodes, uh, has. You, you got Geralt, uh, Dandelion, uh, Milva join the team, uh, Zoltan and his caravan, uh, Kahir, uh, you know, sort of off on the sidelines following them. Uh, but it is a an adventuring party, an adventuring party of you know of uh, various different classes and specialties. You got you got the you uh, you got the uh, the the ranger. You got the paladin. You got the uh, the the bard. You got the the uh, the rogue, etc. And they're traveling through a war zone. Um, they're not you know, participating in the actual fighting, but they see the after effects of that. That feels very D and D from every aspect of it. It's it, it's a it's a pretty nice feeling. It will become in the more focus as the chapters go on, and especially next book when the full team is assembled. You know, Geralt's Hansa, his company will have you know pretty much the entire spectrum of D and D classes covered, um, and uh, you know the this this ties into their sort of thing of you know when when you have a D and D party in traditional D and D, everybody's got their own idiosyncrasies. Uh, each player have different tastes, and as a result, this can create some fun dynamics. Um, and uh, here we have outcasts within outcasts. Um, you know you have. Kahir, who uh, isn't technically officially a member yet, but, you know, he's been following them around this entire uh, chapter, and so it's pretty clear, and he offered to join initially a Nilfgaardian, an important Nilfgaardian, an officer. Uh, but he is uh, not a Nilfgaardian in his eyes. He doesn't speak with a Nilfgaardian accent. Uh, when people ask him, you know, uh, talk about him like he's a Nilfgaardian, he will show, I'm not Nilfgaardian, I'm from Vico Vero. Uh, and so this entire concept, you know, is encapsulated him, and of course you got Geralt, who's the witcher, who's not a witcher. You know, that, that was quite literally stated by Zoltan uh, in this chapter of, you know, you... you, you you think you're still a witcher, but you have you you haven't been a witcher for a long time. Then you have Dandelion, who is a bard who fits more in line with the dwarves and the way they do things than uh, anyone else. You got Melva, a human who helps refugee elves and lived with the dryads. You have Zoltan, a dwarf who. Uh, has nothing but pure compassion for everyone because he fears that the world has gotten darker and darker and so he tries to help when he can. And even when he is basically shunned because of what he is, a dwarf, he still insists on helping. The, the, the humans that are with him in his caravan, they're scared of him. They distrust him. Doesn't matter to him. He's still helping them out. Uh, and so you have this entire dichotomy here of outcasts within outcasts, of people who are different from the norm. Uh, and that really plays into the D&D style, because in D&D, because of each player bringing their own idiosyncrasies and different character ideas and whatnot, you'll tend to come up with very bizarre ideas that, uh, you know, uh, there's an old statement about, uh, you know, if you, lit a, if you let players choose any race they want outside of the core races, you'll never have a human in the party. Uh, and that's the joke. 
uh, is that because humans, especially creative people, tend to play D&D like weird and wacky concepts. And so that is reflective in the D&D party. And of course, here we have that, where they're all people who fit the core concepts of D&D, but they're all outsiders of their core concepts. This chapter uh, sees the Kahir stuff come full swing. I talked about this during Time of Contempt when he finally got his name. I talked about it a little bit when he didn't have a name, back when he was just being talked about when he was seen briefly in Blood of Elves. But Kahir is a young man. A young man thrown into a situation far outside of his control, and he got way into over his head. And now that is being thrown back in his face. He's being punished for it. Uh, Siri, when she, you know, uh, injured him and realized he was a young man, not much older than her, she let him be. Uh, and then Geralt stumbled when Kahir pleaded for Geralt, do not kill me. You know, I, I let her go because of the kindness he showed Ciri. Geralt let Kahir live. And so now, Kahir being in the in the hands of Scoitel, who are now being given to the Delph Guardians, of course, Geralt and Co. get in the middle of that accidentally, leads to an interesting thing where he is a Nilf Guardian. But he's not a Nilf Guardian. <laughs> not only geography-wise, he's from Vigo Vero, but also that he doesn't feel like he's Nilf Guardian. Um, he has a purpose that we will get into later, uh, but, like, he has something different about him, and, uh, he has been woken up, uh, you know, his, he was a kid, uh, he was a kid of noble birth, which meant he was an officer, and he was thrown into this situation, and he kept fucking up, and so as he stewed and realize the mistakes he made and the mistakes thrust upon him, he realizes, is this really what I am? Is this what I really want to be? And so he breaks out of that shell and decides to, you know, become something different. Uh, and not an elf guardian. Someone else. The Black Knight shed his armor to become the White Knight. And we will get more into that as time goes on. But what's most interesting here is the way... Kahir and Geralt interact. Because Geralt, he is a man of many things. One of the things I pointed out from the very beginning and continue to point out, and this this book is all about confronting him with that, is he's a big old phony. He says a lot of things, he tries to act certain ways, but that's not really who he is. And so when it came to Kahir, he it, he's just so tired. He's so tired of killing people. He's so tired of hurting people. All he really cares about is Siri. Siri and Yen. That's all that's ever on his mind anymore. And, you know, he is afraid. Afraid of himself. Afraid of what happened to Siri. Afraid of what happened to Yen. So forth and so with. And so when he's confronted with a man that he know is specifically responsible for chasing after Ciri, responsible for her nightmares all the way back in Blood of Elves, you know, the Black Knight that kept chasing her, um, he feels nothing but anger. But he can't really bring himself to harm him because he sees his young kid way in over his head, asked to do things that he probably disagreed with, or if he didn't, he didn't fully comprehend it. So he gives him a threat. Next time I see you, I will kill you. So they see each other again. And big surprise, Geralt doesn't kill him. Geralt is 
a phony. He uh he likes to pretend to be the killer, the uh, the the person who get, who kills monsters and gets paid, and that's it. That's not who he really is, and he hasn't been that for a long time, especially now. You know he he was humbled at Thanid. He had his ass handed to him by Vilgefortz. Now he forever has a broken leg. Throughout this entire chapter, he talks about how he keeps feeling pain in his knee. It's causing him issues. And Melville even says, you left before you were fully healed. You will probably walk with a limp for the rest of your life. Which, of course, is wonderful on several ways. First of all, as someone with fibromyalgia and an autoimmune disease that attacks my bones, I fully understand his pain and how irritating it and annoying it is and how angry it makes you and how much you want to do more but you can't but also it leaves you just so exhausted and you can barely pick yourself off the floor i get that entirely too it gives consequence to what happened at that it wasn't just a flashy fight for flash's sake it is entirely something of consequence Geralt will be like this for the rest of the saga uh, he has a limp he is now a cripple uh our main character now has an inherent weakness in him that he will have to accept for himself and finds the ways to compensate for that so that he can be the man that he once was, but he can't because there's no going home again. And so now he has to adjust and become someone new. This is the, you know, it's the very literal breaking girl down that becomes more apparent as we go throughout this book. And the the other reason um, is that it uh it allows him to humble himself he realizes seeing kihiro a young man he's not young anymore Gelt's an old man he's too tired for this and all he really cares about is his family and so now he has to think about that first and foremost hell milva directly calls him out this chapter when he's like, you know, I'm gonna go, I, you, you, I'm gonna go grab a boat. I'm gonna sail down the river. I'm gonna get to Nilfgaard. I'm gonna save Siri. And whoop de do and blah blah blah. <laughs> and Milfa goes, Are you fucking serious? You're, you're a cripple. You're a witcher who thinks he's a witcher, but you're not really a witcher anymore, are you? Also, I can't wait to hear the tales of you saving the princess, the now empress of Nilfgaard from the clutches of the evil emperor in that evil castle of e with evil towers. Uh, yes, the great witcher came to Nilfgaard with Vincent's heart on a rowboat. How ridiculous is that? Uh, and it, it just points out that Donald has slipped further and further into himself. He is a man with depression. Um, you know, me and Josh talked about this. He he read him as on the autistic scale. I've always read him as a, it be having the de uh, depression and potentially other mental health issues, but it really it really shows when he has this entire thing about you know um, that that he he's uh, uh, he's feeling constantly helpless, um, and he just feels like he can't do anything, and everything he has has been lost. So he's desperate, and he's clinging to things, and that desperation is making him look like an idiot because his decisions are rash and stupid, which is why he needs everybody else there. Dandelion there to call out the emotional stupidity, Milford to, to act like the mom and call out the actual stupidity of consequences, etc. And we'll see that uh, continue on. Help! 
Zoltan, in many ways, is a reflection of Geralt. He's a man who wants to do good despite who and what he is and what he is perceived to be. And he talks about, of Pacific good, radical altruism. Uh, and that it's, you can't help everyone, you can't help the world, because it will be, you know, meaningless. You, you know, you can't affect everything. You're just one small fish in a big pond. So what's the point? Instead, you help your immediate circle, your friends, your family, those around you, to ensure that maybe they can continue on and do good, so forth, and it's a domino effect. Does that not describe Geralt's entire outlook on life? And that's why he asks no further questions of Sultan, because he immediately gets it. Another thing about Geralt is the way he is motivated by his dreams of Siri. We've known he's uh, shared some sort of magical link with Siri for a long time, but that's really being shown here where he sees what's going on with the rats. He's being told by everyone Siri is off in Nilfgaard, and that's where he thinks she roughly is. He's not sure. But that Siri there probably isn't the real Siri, but he's not sure right now. All, all he has right now is a goal, and a goal is to get Siri, and that's it. But his dreams are showing him something sinister. He is afraid from what is going on. He uh, he even talks about that he sees this girl holding hands with Siri and smiling at her. Doesn't like that smile. It, you know, even he can see that there is something dark and twisted going on with Siri right now, and he can't comprehend it because he's not in it at the moment, but all he knows is his paternal instinct is kicking in and say, I gotta save my daughter and I gotta save her now. Um, and he he fears for who Ciri's becoming. She's going against every rule he taught her back in Blood of Elves where she is delighting in killing along with the rest of the rats. One of the more interesting sides of this chapter specifically, outside of all the character work for Geralt and Cahir specifically, the way you can tell this chapter was written by a man who grew up just after World War II. Skowski was born in 1948, and as a result, Poland had just, you know, the World War II had just ended not too long ago, a few years prior. And Poland was sucked up by the USSR uh, and was in the process of rebuilding. And um, it took a very long time for them to get to a place where they were stable again. The entirety of Warsaw, their capital city, had to be rebuilt brick by brick by brick. And because of that, you saw the people who grew up there saw the futility of it all and saw how ridiculous this was. Um, there's a lot of jokes about Eastern Europe in particular, but also specifically Poland, having known people who lived in Poland, about Polish pessimism. They are, they are people that have been repeatedly kicked around by history over and over and over again, and that they see nothing but misery and sadness in front of them. They're constantly frowning and stuff. And of course, that's an exaggeration. And not one stereotype fits all people. But it's enough to really show you the type of environment Sapkowski grew up in. As Geralt and co. are going through this place, these war zones, it it's not about the battles. It's not about the politics of the battles. It's about the aftermath and what people whether associated with the, the, the war or not, have done to each other. In a very lesser type of story, let's say Netflix Witcher, 
we would see this battle, the battles that Geralt and Co. are, uh, are riding through, and see the, the epicness of their clashing sides, and blah, 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 and how the Scoia'tael come in and, 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 and provide a third side, and blah, 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 blah. None of that matters. We will have an opportunity to see a big battle later. Lady of the Lake, that's coming. You know, that that's, that's for a time later. And that has a very specific purpose. This entire series does not try and glorify battle, good versus evil, politics of one side or the other, of clashing armies and, and big battles and the coolness of the effects and blah, blah. No, it takes a very anti-war stance on it all. Uh, and that should have been apparent long ago, but it's especially apparent here, and uh, definitely apparent in Lady of the Lake, when we actually do see a big battle, and the way it's portrayed is differently from most ways battles are portrayed in fiction. It's not about it's not about tactics or anything, it's about the effects emotionally. As a result, we see you know, people are hanged because they are traitors or informers. We see as, uh, you know... Uh, these butchered villages, um, you know, you come upon them and it just reeks how the after effects of the battle wasn't, you know, people recuperating, people were being raped, uh, you know, uh, stolen from, etc. How the Scoyatel in their ambushing style raid a village and then take the arrows that they used. So you can tell the difference between a village ransacked by invading armies, and a village ransacked by Scoia'tael, and how that benefits various different sides and the way that they navigate around that. How the Hawkers, we've heard about the Hawkers, actually, uh, several times, in fact. This is the first time we ever met one, and we see from Geralt and Dandelion's interaction with the Hawker that the worst of them, the worst effects of war, aren't the lives lost, aren't the, uh, the men and women conscripted in a battle to fight for ideologies that they could care less about. It's not about the, the destruction uh, rot. It's about the damage psychologically, economically, and environmentally that these do. The land is scorched. For miles upon miles, you can see pillars of smoke. And the entire place is littered with rotting corpses, or those put out as uh, warnings to others. Everything is looted. And the hawkers, those damn fucking hawkers, they're war profiteers. They're arms dealers. This is beautiful for them. They couldn't care less about anything. They're not fighting ideologies, not even participating in the war. No, 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 no. Why would they need to do that? War is good for business. And money makes the world go around, doesn't it? And so they sell weapons. Both sides. Hell, they even sell weapons to the Scoia'tael. Scoia'tael, who specifically have a deep hatred of humans and are more than likely going to kill innocent women and children and uh, other humans of, uh, you know, in various different places just because they have a pure hatred of it. They are racially motivated. These humans see no problem with that. It pays you money, you pay, it makes you chances, right? This is the most brutal look at the way war affects us. There are a lot of different ways to be anti-war, and there's a lot of different ways fiction can tackle it. The most obvious is the senseless loss of life for ideological purposes. 
for people forced into a situation that they never wanted to be in. The more insidious side to look at it from is the way that these things hurt unintentionally or allow scumbags to prop themselves up on the backs of the suffering. The hawkers are the ultimate in capitalist ideology. Money makes the world go round, and that's the end of it. Who cares what that money is being used for, what these things are being done? I made my money. I can go home now. Whereas the entire environment is being scorched by this, and who knows how long it's going to be until something bad happens. Hell, the smallpox is sitting in certain areas of the war zone, and people are predicting maybe a famine's not too long away from now. This is what war brings us. It brings us destruction, not of just people's lives, but of environmentalism, of economics, and of the psychological understanding. As this chapter points out, you become numb to things as you see it often. You become indifferent. So as Dandelion, Geralt, Melva, etc. are traveling across this land, they begin disgusted and slowly get used to it. They are still good people, certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, Dandelion even says when Geralt wants him to uh, go away and basically get to safety, he says, no, you know, Dandelion's so many things, a coward, one of them, but also he'll always have his best friends back, uh, which means if that means traveling through a war zone, he will. And because of that, we see as they slowly grow immune to this, which comes to a head at the smallpox camp scene, where the brigands uh, are taking advantage of this, trying to steal uh, and potentially rape this young girl, and so Geralt steps in and does what he thinks needs to be done. And it ends with a lot of loss of life. Since this loss of life, people could have been better. And there's also this side thing about how Geralt thinks that girl at one point looks like Ciri, and so his parental instincts kick in. He's losing himself. His, the indifference that this Eronia has brought into him has made him numb. And now Ciri and Yen is all he thinks about, and that is causing issues. I, I just like how it doesn't try and hit you over the head with what war does. It's not trying to convey war as either glorious or completely bad by showing you the war. It's showing you the aftershocks. And something I talked about in Babylon 5 that I really loved about that show in particular was I am far less concerned about the process of which things happen as I am the aftermath a lot of times. One thing that always drove me nuts with, say, Star Wars, uh, a franchise a lot of people like in this world, is that you you take the original trilogy, you have a group of uh, a rebellion that overcomes a fascist dictator. Then what? Doesn't matter, the credits are rolled. Everybody's cheering, everybody's happy, right? There's a lot more complications going on there, but the movie 
and the franchise as a whole had no real interest in exploring it. Hell, you know, the books tried, the comics tried, but when those were all went away and Disney started making movies, they just wanted to repeat the original trilogy again. So Fascist Dictator and Rebellion and blah, blah, blah. It was not interested in the idea of the political maneuverings. The prequels, as much hate as they get, actually tried that by exploring how democracy can slowly slip into fascism. But since neither hand in there, that's Star Wars. But that's my point is I'm far more interested in the way we deal with the aftermath. One thing I realized about Babylon 5 is that civil wars are a mess. And the entirety of the last couple episodes of Season 4 and the and all of Season 5 was pretty much dealing with the aftershocks of what Sheridan did. And so here we are seeing the war and the big political stuff that we've been talking about for the past couple books come to a head, but Geralt's not actively involved in it. He's seen the aftermath of it and the futility of it all because someone who's not personally invested in it sees nothing but pain. And I think that is far more interesting of a take uh, than showing big epic battle circa Netflix's version of Sodden Hill. As a, as a brief note, I, I figured it must be said that yeah, Zoltan uh, is pretty popular in the games. They changed him a little bit in the games, but he's he's mostly there. I like his voice actor in the English version especially. Um, and Beryl, the game that uh, Zoltan and his caravan are playing that Geralt learns how to play, is Gwent. Uh, spelled G-W-I-N-T in the Polish original, changed to uh, G-W. ENT for English, but here it was transferred to as a barrel in the games. It's, you know, it's more of a Magic Gathering collector's card style game, whereas in the original, it's a bit different. Blackjack mixed with a couple other things, so it is inherently different, but I think that is cool, because if you follow the franchise as a whole, outside of the books, and etc., outside of the games, etc., there's, like, fun little things here. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the mysterious ruins on the, the Dwarven's heel that is given to Geralt. We'll get to those later. Uh, but I always like that, that that's a little nod. And there's also a lot of good world-building, the way uh, Pacific swords are manufactured, and how gnomish and dwarvish engineering techniques differ, and how the humans profit over this, and how that uh, Mount Carbon and Mahakam play in the world economy. You can definitely see that Sukowski is you know an accountant by profession and so his focus is on that kind of stuff especially and that, that's even seen to a lesser extent in the hawkers and the way that the evils of capitalism prey on situations exactly like this now the next chapter chapter three is one of my favorites it's a it's a lot of fun um and is the kind of chapter uh that I wish more series would do um, sadly not a lot do. I shall see you then. Till then, bye.